The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Good morning, Grace Family Church. As you heard, this morning we are continuing in our series, A Life Worth Living, preaching through the enigmatic book of Ecclesiastes. Today we'll actually reach the midpoint of this book. Last week, uh, quite memorably, Sean took us into chapter 5. Today we're going to complete that chapter and we're going to preach through most of chapter 6. So please make your way in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. To prepare us to enter this text, I want to point your attention to Proverbs 23.23. It says, buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. They are assets that you buy and never sell because they retain their value or even appreciate in value over time. So if you can get them, you are to get them. Wisdom is one such asset. Truth and wisdom, instruction and understanding are on offer here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 8 to chapter 6 verse 9. You see, they've been on offer for us throughout this book. And what it's going to cost you to acquire them is thoughtful attention and faithful response. So let's listen carefully then to Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 6, 9. It's a fairly extensive section, so track with me. It's going to help you just to follow in your Bibles as I read. This is God's holy word, given to lead us towards a life worth living under the sun. And I want to read from here. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, reading from verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. 
For he will not remember, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place, to the one place? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I don't believe that this lengthy passage requires an elaborate or ingenious introduction. Yes, there are a few ancient images or, and ideas and proverbs that I'll need to help you to connect with. But you could strike up a conversation today with anyone you meet without the need to break the ice on the topic that the preacher now addresses, the topic of wealth. He turns his attention to the pursuit of wealth and satisfaction under the sun. The narrator of Ecclesiastes, now remember the words of the preacher are being presented to us framed by an, an unknown narrator. The narrator wrote for an audience living in the third century before Christ. It was a time of oppression for the Jewish people. Yet, because of the way the empires were being constructed, it was also a time of great economic opportunity. Many of them, back in those days, were tempted to chase the same things we're tempted to chase these days. But for the language barrier, they could sing along with the jingle of a popular investment bank that we have strong connections to. We are pre-investments. We are pre-progress. Because we have to hustle till the dream come true. Now, in defense of my pastor and my other pastor's wife, and perhaps my own wife, though I must say she works on the giving side of the business. Just saying, <laughs> the preacher is not against possessing wealth. That's not his issue. He's not against having money. He's not against or investing our money. In fact, we're going to hear him speak of wealth as something that God gives. But he most certainly wants to save us from many pitfalls that we're pulled towards by our own sinful hearts and the thinking of the world around us. The fact is, the preacher wants to revolutionize our relationship with money. So what wisdom does he have to give? Satisfaction comes not from wealth, but from God's power to enjoy his daily gifts. That's the point of this text. Satisfaction comes not from wealth, but from God's power to enjoy his daily gifts. The preacher wants us to have clarity about where the quality of life comes from as we live the few days of our lives under the sun. A life worth living does not come through wealth, from money, riches, possessions, or even honor alongside all of that. 
To chase wealth as if it will give you satisfaction is to run after the wind as if you can grab it and hold it. Enjoyment in this heavenly world is a gift of God. Believing that will help us not to weary ourselves in the pursuit of aspirations and will position us to receive what only God can give. Satisfaction comes not from wealth, but from God's power to enjoy His daily gifts. What's going to help us this morning to hear and to understand this passage is recognizing a tool that the preacher employs in his writing. It's called chiasm. Unfamiliar word, but this is your word for the day. Chiasm. Ancient Near Eastern writing often employed parallelism as a way of communicating ideas. If you've read the Psalms, you would have noticed that often he seems to be saying the same idea and then saying it again, or saying an idea and then saying the opposite of it. This is true also of Proverbs. Uh, there are simple, there are exa- examples in this text of simple forms of parallelism. Look at verses 10 and 11 again in chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Here the preacher strengthens his point by repeating the same truth in a slightly different way. Now, chiasm is a much more complex form of parallelism. It works by placing a central truth in the middle of what's being said rather than as a conclusion at the end. We often, in making our arguments, will put the point at the end. In chiasm, the point is right in the middle. But it's it's, it's arranged, it's surrounded by parallel ideas that are are arranged around it. The commentator Douglas O'Donnell explains how it works in this passage. If we begin from the outside, the themes in the first and last section are similar. Then as we continue to move from the outside inward, we see how the theme of an earlier section parallels a later theme. This narrowing in on the main theme takes us to the center, the poetic and practical point of the passage. So to picture this, think of walking up on the platform. I forgot we weren't going to be on the platform today. But picture the platform and the way it has stairs going up to the center. So if you were to walk up to the center and then back down the other side, you'd travel the same number of stairs on on both ends of your journey. So that's the kind of journey the preacher is taking us on. With that awareness, what I want to do, instead of walking through the passage verse by verse, we're going to work our way, we're going to work from the outside and work our way in and consider parallel sections. So you'll see them here. I'm going to walk you through what we're going to do. So our first insight will be this. Wealth is unattainable for some and unsatisfying for all. The references are there so you can follow me and I'll get back to them as I I reach each insight. The second insight is this. Wealth is unreliable and insufficient for a worthwhile life. The third insight, this is our central point, the preacher's central point, is this. Whether wealthy or not, the good life comes through God-given power to enjoy his gifts each day. So there, I've laid all my cards on the table. Sometimes in preaching more familiar passages, I like to reveal. Can I do this big reveal at the end? This is what it all means? I'm not doing that today. These are the insights that we need to grapple with. In fact, we need them to grab a hold of us. But because they are so contrary to the messages we hear, I want them to be in front of us the whole way through. So, let's consider first insight one. Wealth is unattainable for some and unsatisfying for all. So we're going to work our way through chapter 5, verses 8 to 12, alongside chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. It's going to help us to remember the bigger journey that we've been on. 
The scholar Craig Bartholomew reminds us, this exploration, as with all the others, operates under the rubric of chapter 1, verse 3. Koholeth, Koheleth, sorry, which is the, the, the Hebrew name for the preacher, Koheleth wants, wants to know what work and thus life is all about. And wealth is one of the areas he examines in this respect. Here's what we need to be aware of as we get into this section. The preacher is still answering the question he asked in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's still making his case that all is hevel, meaning, sat, meaning and satisfaction are elusive things. You can't grab life by the horns. It's smoke that slips through your fingers. If you were with us last week, we saw the preacher offer wisdom for worshipping in the house of God in, at the start of chapter 5. He, he appears now to have abruptly changed direction. But in fact, he's still talking about worship. Jesus makes this clear when he warns us, you cannot serve God and money. Craig Bartholomew helps us too with this gathered insight. So Bartholomew is writing and he's going to quote a number of people. We in the West should note the contemporary relevance of Koheleth's exploration of wealth. The accumulation of wealth is one of the great idols of our day, and huge amounts of energy are spent seeking meaning through greater and greater accumulation of wealth and possessions. Miles notes, consumerism appears to have become part and parcel of the very fabric of modern life. And the parallel with religion is not an accidental one. Consumerism is arguably the religion of the late 20th century. As Wuthnot asserts, we cannot fully appreciate the depths of materialism until we understand how economic behavior supplies us with meaning, purpose, and a sense of sacred order. So, what that means is that we need to weigh these verses, aware that every day we wake up and we resume our unrelenting search for meaning. One of the paths that we're tempted to follow to that end, one that's literally advertised to us, is the pursuit of wealth. But the preacher's contemplation of wealth and satisfaction begins in an unexpected place. He speaks again, if you look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5, of the oppression and injustice suffered by the poor. He's lamented these previously at the beginning of chapter 4 and also in chapter 3. As his thoughts turn to wealth and satisfaction, he thinks of the poor, those for whom wealth is often unattainable because of oppression and injustice. Pay attention to what he says. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. No, that strikes me as good counsel. Because I find myself in many moments being amazed at the latest government or corporate scandal in which the poor and powerless are deprived and victimized. And here in Jamaica, neither of our leading political parties is above reproach. The, preacher, the preacher's point doesn't contradict the teaching of Scripture on a whole. He recognizes these things as a violation. Be concerned, yes. Do justice and love mercy, yes. But don't be amazed. Why not? Corruption and injustice are maintained by the hierarchy. He's not describing the watching over of accountability. He's pointing out what we know so well. The people in power watch each other's backs. Every now and then, somebody's going to get a slap on the wrist when they transgress too much, but they usually also get a cushioned landing, and sometimes even a path back into power. The preacher does not want us to forget that we live east of Eden, in a fallen world where the desire for wealth, 
manifests itself in the abuse of power and in corruption. The love of money leads the powerful to oppress the poor. Proverbs 13.23 helps us to see the connection between oppression, corruption, and production. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. In Israel, according to God's law, the poor, even if you just, just, just messed up your whole family business and you had to sell your land and sell yourself into slavery, there were laws that guaranteed that the land would be returned to your family after a period of time. Because land, was, land provided them with the ability to build wealth for themselves. Over and against the corruption that the preacher knows that we'll see around us, he points us to what would be beneficial for all. A king committed to cultivated fields. Bartholomew explains, the image evoked is that just, is that just rule would facilitate plowed fields throughout the land so that all can benefit from the fruit of the earth. The land should be for all, and the king should facilitate justice. Now, think about this. In the history of the world, we have seen many different systems of government. Yet, none has proven to be able to control human greed. All of that should make us long for a better king. One who loves the poor and is committed to justice and righteousness. Jesus demonstrated himself to be that king when he walked on this earth. You see that in the Gospel of Luke in particular, because Luke writes with this particular concern for the poor and the marginalized. And the good news is, when Jesus returns, his rule over the whole earth will be visible and tangible. As I was thinking about these verses, somehow my mind made a connection with this fascinating picture in Micah chapter 4. In that chapter, we're given a vision of the future kingdom of God, with Jerusalem established as a global center for instruction and justice and righteousness. That passage is known for the image of people beating their, their swords into plowshares, which Michael Jackson co-opted for his song, Heal the World, suggesting that somehow we as human beings could fulfill that vision by ourselves without God. Thankfully, we have a better king. That vision of the future in Micah includes this detail in verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his own vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. It appears that even what the preacher longs for here in Ecclesiastes is a part of the coming kingdom. Now, I look forward to seeing how all of that comes together. But you see, here's the thing we need to realize. We demonstrate that we are longing for Jesus' rule and living under it when we treat those we employ and those whose services we contract both justly and generously. May we, as God's people, be the aroma of, 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 of righteousness, of the righteousness and generosity of our King to the poor around us. Here's what we need to think about this morning in the face of how our culture thinks about wealth. If a life worth living could be had through the accumulation of possessions, then the poor are non-starters in the game. That thinking is why the lottery entices the poor the way it does. The irony is that the lottery itself is a means of oppression and injustice. This is the writer Russell Moore in his customary candid way. Gambling grinds the faces of the poor into the ground. It benefits corporations while oppressing the lower classes with illusory promises of wealth. You see, the preacher wants to deliver us, he wants to deliver all of us from all such false promises. 
He isn't merely observing the fact that wealth is unattainable by some. He wants us to recognize that wealth is unsatisfying to all. To look at this, jump over to chapter 6 and look at verse 7. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Sidney Gredanus explains and expands on what the preacher has captured in this proverb. We work in order to eat. Come morning, we feel hungry again. The appetite here refers not only to our appetite for food, but also our appetite for wealth. Our appetite for wealth and possessions will never be satisfied. The preacher hits us with this music over and over again in chapter 5 verse 10. If we love money, we will not be satisfied with it. If we love wealth, our income will never be enough in our estimation. It's heaven. You see, what we tend to tell ourselves is that we want more money because we don't have enough of it. John D. Rockefeller is widely reputed to be the richest man, in, richest person in modern history. He died nearly a century ago. He's, uh, he, I, I find this quotation easily. Some people wonder if he said it, but he's reputed to have said this. How much money does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. The desire for wealth is insatiable. And it gets worse in verse 11. When your income goes up, you inevitably increase your standard of living. You, you have more only to watch it go. Haven't you felt that? Like, wow, I got some more money. Oh, wow, it's gone. Yeah. The tires cost more for that nicer car. That bigger house is more to clean and furnish. And you have to try those better restaurants and travel to all the places you've dreamed of. And of course, you have to insure everything. So you're paying out more and more to more people to maintain the more that you've acquired. And if you ever were to get truly rich, that comes with all those who flock to you to get a piece of the pie. More money, more problems. As wise men, well, as men once said. They weren't so wise. They certainly were prophets, sometimes of their own doom. In verse 12, the preacher contrasts the restlessness of the rich with the sweet sleep of the laborer, who, whether he has much or little, sleeps well after a hard day's work. The full stomach, he says, of the rich doesn't allow him to sleep, which is probably not just a picture of overeating, but one of overabundance. Having much means that you have much to lose and therefore much to worry about. Look at chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Once again, the futility of it all appears to make the preacher question the value of wisdom. If wisdom should lead to wealth, a connection the Bible makes, in particular in Proverbs, but wealth is unsatisfying, does the wise man actually have any advantage over the fool? And what advantage does the poor man who knows how to live well have? In verse 9, the preacher suggests one advantage that the poor man may have, an advantage he wants us all to have. A wise perspective on possessions. The commentator Richard Belcher explains, If the appetite can never be satisfied, then what one already possesses is better than what one desires but does not possess. Let me read that again. If the appetite can never be satisfied, then what one, possesses, what one already possesses is better than what one desires but does not possess. So this question confronts us again in this book. How are you doing at being content with what you have? The preacher continues his persuasion by sharing more of what he has observed under the sun. 
he shares two tragic stories that he's seen. We'll consider them as our insight number two. So look in your Bibles again at chapter 5, verse 13. What I want you to notice is how it starts. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Now look at chapter 6, verse 1. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. That correspondence in language marks out the parallel truths that we're going to consider now. Soon we'll hear the preacher speak of what's good and fitting, but he's highlighted that good by bracketing it with two evils. Tragic stories of two men and their wealth. Once again, let's get the relevant card on the table. Here's the insight that the preacher offers us. Wealth is unreliable and insufficient for a worthwhile life. Wealth is unreliable and insufficient for a worthwhile life. Again, I want to take the time to frame the insight on offer so that we relate these ancient stories to modern thinking. The writer Suzanne White wrote about 25 years ago, but it still describes our world well, and this is a little long. So, track with me here. If there is an overarching meta-narrative that purports to explain reality in the late 20th century, it is surely the meta-narrative of the free market economy. In the beginning of this narrative is the self-made, self-sufficient human being. You've heard that, haven't you? Right. At the end of this narrative is the big house, the big car, and the expensive clothes, what we were talking about before. In the middle, and this is where it's key, in the middle is the struggle for success, the greed, the getting and spending in a world where there is no such thing as a free lunch. Most of us have made this so thoroughly our story that we are hardly aware of its influence. Craig Bartholomew adds, with the demise of socialism and the triumph of, the free, of free market capitalism, the love of money is commonly regarded as a goal to be pursued. But Koheleth rightly observes, it is not the answer to life and can bring its own share of grief. The stories he's going to tell us now vividly illustrate that grief. And the preacher for his part seems to enter the grief and not merely observe it. You know, you can watch Somebody go through a bad circumstance and be like, wow, that's bad. But it's like the preacher himself is suffering as he tells these stories. The language he uses indicates that he's sickened by the futility of it all. And perhaps we should recognize this as an invitation, not merely to hear these stories, but to seek to feel them. To feel the frustration and the futility and the loss. If the hustle culture tells us stories of entrepreneurship on steroids and success as a matter of identity, the preacher passionately offers us cautionary tales. The first story is told between verse 13 and 17 of chapter 5. Here we meet a man who went to great pains to acquire and accumulate wealth and then lost it all in a bad venture. This story, of course, has repeated itself over and over through the, throughout the centuries between the preacher's time and our own. The only thing that, that varies is the details of said bad venture. We could just as well tell contemporary stories of those who lost it all in the mortgage crisis in 2007, or in some Ponzi scheme, whether international or local, or in the recent collapse of FT, FTX, which was one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges. Bad ventures rarely ever look bad when you're getting into them. And then it, become, it becomes apparent that they are. A tragic detail in the preacher's story is that this man had a son, but now his son had no inheritance. Many of us often think of what it would be like to have more than we do. 
I mean, we can confess that here. But few of us think often of what it would be like to lose it all. The reality is, wealth is unreliable. The preacher illustrates this with his tale, but it's said plainly in Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I mean, you have to love the Proverbs, don't you? I mean, suddenly it sprouts wings. It's like you thought you were looking at a sheep. And you thought you could tell where that sheep would stay. I put it in the pen and it's going to stay there. And all of a sudden you watch the sheep burst out wings and fly out to the pen that you kept it in. And you never see That's a gorgeous image. And it's a vivid description of why wealth is so unreliable. Back here in Ecclesiastes 5, the preacher reflects on the futility of it all. After his toil... This man will leave nothing behind and will take nothing with him. He entered this world naked and will leave with nothing, just as we all will. You see, it's death that mocks all our toil when we're trying to find meaning in accumulating wealth. This is the tragedy the preacher wants us to feel the weight of. And he adds something else about this man's dismal state. Meals for the people of that day were common all times with family and friends, but this man is isolated angry and ill, eating in darkness. And often that dark, when when the preacher talks about darkness, he doesn't mean literal darkness, he means spiritual darkness. No, we do not like telling stories of disaster and, and the dismay of financial ruin. Sure, the news services every now and then will publish the occasional article that we'll gasp at. But we don't want to hear many of those stories. The exception, of course, would be when somebody suffers loss and then has this dramatic recovery. An interview program with guest after guest telling how I lost it all probably wouldn't attract many sponsors. But we have so many that repeatedly showcase I got where I am through hard work and you can do it too stories. We need the wisdom of the scriptures to shape our aspirations instead of those stories. Wealth is unstable and unreliable. Now it might seem obvious that to lose all your wealth would be a grievous thing. But what's fascinating in this text is that the preacher is grieved not only by the story of the man who loses his wealth, but by the story of the man who has everything, but without the power to enjoy it. Look now at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Listen to the language and feel the weight of the tragedy. This man has everything that everyone else is chasing. Wealth, possessions, and even honor. He is rich and famous. And not like those celebrities we love to hate, you know. No, this man is admired by myriads. He lacks nothing of all he desires. And here's the shocking part. All of that was given to him by God. Yet, in fact, he does lack something. Something he didn't know that he needed. He lacks the power to enjoy what God has given him. And the tragedy of his story is that a stranger... Someone he doesn't even know, not not a family member or even a friend, enjoys all of those gifts instead of him. 
You can understand the preacher's editorial comment. This is hevel. It is a grievous evil. Wealth is insufficient for a worthwhile life because it doesn't necessarily come with the power to enjoy it. Douglas O'Donnell points out that this story touches back on the I can't get no satisfaction theme that Solomon explored earlier in Ecclesiastes 2, 1-11. It puts an exclamation point on it, however, because of God's clear role in the matter. It's not merely that money can't buy joy. It's also that God makes sure of it. To strengthen his point, the preacher offers a hypothetical scenario. So he paints us a picture, kind of launching from this man's story, of a man who, has every, who, had, who had everything the people of that day thought represented having God's favor. An exaggerated number of children, an exaggeratedly long life, and the possessions that we desire. And he says that if this man's soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he is not honored and remembered after his death, then a stillborn child is better off than he. I mean, it's a shocking way to speak. No, he's not making light of the tragic loss of miscarriage or carrying a child to term only to deliver them and find out that they've already died. But he's desperate to help us to feel the sickening tragedy of a life without God's gifts of satisfaction and rest. Stillbirth feels like this bewildering loss. There's a sense of pointlessness that we can't escape. It's as if you, you know, this woman has nourished this child in her body for nine months and then the child is born dead. That the preacher says of such a child that it comes in vanity, in heaven, and goes in darkness. Yet, he's arguing that that child is better off than a man who has reached the pinnacle of what we want for ourselves, but was denied satisfaction in this life by God. That child, the preacher says, does not experience the futility of this life and finds rest. What the preacher may be implying is such a man does not even find rest even after his death. Bartholomew explains, Pursuit of wealth and honor above all things boomerangs back on the person and leaves one restless and unfulfilled. As the Genesis narrative makes clear, the lack of rest in work is integrally connected to a broken relationship with God. Wealth is unreliable and it is insufficient for a worthwhile life. And no amount of work, effort, or hustle can earn us the power to enjoy life's good things. So, what can we do? We can listen. The preacher has one more insight to offer us. Insight number three. Notice this. Ecclesiastes 5.18 starts with the word, Behold. Now if you read the Bible, especially if you grew up, grew up reading King James, you'll see a lot of beholds in the Bible. But it gets, it's there and sometimes we, we, we stop beholding because there's so many beholds. You see, we all have our heads down in the hustle and bustle of daily life in the town square, expending energy and spending what we earn to get what we want. And it's as if the preacher steps into the middle of that square, stands up on a bench with a bullhorn and says, Hey, look, listen, listen to me, listen to this, focus on this. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. 
Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not remember the, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now I want you to notice several things in this section with me. Here's the first thing. Joy pervades the life described here. That's because God is central to this life. God is mentioned four times in these three verses. He's the one who gives us each day we live and gives wealth and possessions and most critically the power to enjoy them. Joy here is clearly a gift from God. Notice too that our capacity to joy is not tied to how much we possess. Look carefully at these verses again in your Bible. Joy in eating and drinking and our toil in verse 18 can be the lot we're given in life without the wealth and possessions of verse 19. In either case, wisdom looks like accepting our lot. The gift of God is the power to rejoice in the lot we're given, in our meals and our drinks, whether they're simple or fancy, and in our work, which will always feel hard in this fallen world. Gradanus explains the effect that that gift that the preacher points to in verse 20, the effect of that gift. Even when we encounter difficulties as we undoubtedly will, joy will dominate our lives. So this is the central insight the preacher offers us. Whether wealthy or not, the good life comes through God-given power to enjoy his gifts each day. Let me tease out the implications of that a little bit more, and then I'll address an important question that we must ask ourselves since this is the case. The good life is not aspirational. It doesn't merely promise joy once you've overcome certain hurdles or made it to particular milestones. The gift of God is joy today and each day in our toil and in our meals and, in, and the beverage of our choice. Focus with me on work just for a bit. Toil is one of the repeated ideas in this passage as it, as it challenges our tendency to work to acquire wealth. The preacher wants us to understand that we can find enjoyment in our work, but if our work is only the means by which we're pursuing the good things that we think will come from what we earn, then we're going to be miserable. Receiving and enjoying God's good gifts is very different from abusing those gifts. You see, we can idolize our work and try to use it to establish our identity and our worth. We can abuse food and drink to medicate ourselves in order to forget the misery of our lives for a while. If we do those things, any joy we get from these gifts of God will be fleeting. The joy that the preacher commends to us is not taken or earned. It's received over and over again. So the question we need to ask ourselves then is, how do we receive it? How do we receive the power to enjoy however much God gives us and to accept our lot and rejoice in our toil? Well, it's not as elusive as it may seem. It's right here in front of us. We receive it by embracing and having our hearts trained by the wisdom offered in this book of Ecclesiastes. As God shapes us by his word and specifically in our relationship with money and wealth through this passage, he gives us the gift of joy by altering our perspective and ushering us towards increasing contentment with the gifts he's given us. There's a fascinating connection I notice between these verses and what the Apostle Paul teaches in Philippians. Listen to a few verses that we preached through last summer with Ecclesiastes as a backdrop. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The joy that we hunger for. The strength we need to be content in whatever situation. The power to accept our lot and enjoy what we're given are all found in one place, in one person. They're found in Jesus. Ultimately, joy is found in relationship with the giver, not merely in the gifts. As he teaches us and makes our heart more like his heart, we grow in our capacity for contentment. No, that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus himself is the embodiment of wisdom. We are, jo- when we are joined to him by faith when we put our trust in him. And that too is the gift of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you're not in the Lord, then you can't rejoice in the Lord. If you're not connected to Jesus, you cannot be strengthened by him in the way that Paul describes in Philippians. But the good news is, he is presenting himself to us today to be received by faith. So if you have not been joined to Jesus today, you can turn to him in faith, turning from your self-directed ways to follow him. And you don't necessarily need anyone's help to do that. You can call on him right now where you're sitting. But you will need help to continue that journey. So we'd be glad to help you at whatever point you're at. So please don't hesitate to talk to me or to Sheldon or to Sean after the service. Let's, just for a few moments, think practically about what it would look like to embrace the wisdom we're learning here. So here are a couple of thoughts for you. We have to make time to receive joy. If we're working every waking hour, if we're so driven and so preoccupied, when will we take the opportunity to eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil? You might even enjoy your long hours, but that might be all you get to enjoy. You may rarely enjoy the fruit of your labor and the companionship of those you labor with and for and the gift of a handful of quietness that we were taught about in chapter 4 of this book or the gift of a good night's sleep. There's another thing we can seek to do. If you manage a team or if you, have, if you have influence among those you work with, even though you're not in charge, make time to use the resource and use some resources to share a meal with them ever so often. You can do the same if you're at school and you're doing group projects with people. Suggest that you share a meal or have a link up otherwise. You can even do this if you don't particularly enjoy working with those you work with. It might be that your relationship will improve if you remove work from the equation sometimes. Even if it doesn't, you'll be blessing them. Here's one more. Make a practice of giving thanks at the end of the day. Thank God for all that he enabled you to accomplish, for the joy that he gave you along the way, for food and drink and family and friends and co-workers. You see, gratitude works on both ends of joy. It ushers us into joy and it responds to the joy we're given. Ben Kreps, who's one of my fellow pastors in Sovereign Grace, says this in writing about gratitude. Gratitude is an essential indicator of how well we apprehend the grace and goodness of God. If God is giving joy each and every day, then we give him glory and we do our hearts much good 
to take the time to recognize and thank him for his kindness before we receive yet another gift, the gift of sleep. What's going on back there? Oh, okay, all right. Y'all are okay back there. Okay, all right, good. <laughs> well, well, I'm done. I'm just going to conclude now. <laughs> I began with a proverb, and I want to end by pointing you to another one. This is Proverbs 1.20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. Wisdom has been bawling out to us this morning. Wisdom is out in these streets, bawling out to us. Shouting at the top of her voice. It remains to be seen whether we will heed the preacher's call to behold what is good and fitting. Will we listen to the foolish voices around us that push us to work our fingers to the bone for wealth? in a quest for meaning and joy and satisfaction? Or will we listen to the wisdom of the preacher, which pointed to the wisdom of one greater than Solomon, Jesus himself? Satisfaction comes not from wealth, but from God's power to enjoy his daily gifts. Now, we cannot control our lives or determine our lot, but by God's grace, we can refuse to obey our appetite to acquire more and more. And we can embrace our lot and receive his wisdom and the power to enjoy what he gives us. What's going to help us and sustain us is remembering and rejoicing in the gospel, in the good news, as preached to us in Psalm 16:5-6. God's ultimate gift to us through Christ is himself. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.